Welcome to the Tower Hill Church Podcast. This is Marisa from the Tower Hill Production Team. Thanks so much for listening in. We are deep into a paradigm-shifting sermon series called Jesus is Greater Than, and Pastor Jason is looking at the world around us and how we can use the Bible to shift our thinking and our responses in devastating times. It reminds me of a story about a man who was driving up a mountain road and suddenly an oncoming car crossed into his lane, nearly running him off the road. And then they shouted out the window, pig. This man was so angry that other driver was clearly in the wrong, had no right to call him names. But then a second later, he turned the next corner and there was a pig in the middle of the road. A paradigm shift in our faith can help us navigate around every corner, no matter what comes down the road. So let's check out this week's shift right now. Hey everyone, welcome to worship this morning. Welcome to Tower Hill. We're so glad that you made it for our online service. Well, today we are continuing in our sermon series. I want to encourage you, if you ever want to go back and watch these again, or maybe you missed one or two, you could get caught up. You could go to our website to find the links for that or on our YouTube channel. And uh, you can always stay caught up with our sermon series. And if you're a guest with us, going to our website, towerhillchurch.org, would be a great way for you to figure out and find out all the news and notes of what's going on in the life of the church. So welcome everyone, and let's get right to it in our next installment of Jesus is Greater Than. Well, with everything going on around us and all the craziness of this time and the pandemic and the politics and all of that, people have really been thrown into a panic. It has been chaotic for people's spiritual, emotional, physical lives over the last year. And we're talking today about what starts to happen when people start developing their understanding of God based on a crazy crisis that's going on around them. What are some of the pitfalls of doing that? What are some of the problems and how can we help people see a different way of understanding God, a different way of understanding faith and why it's so important for right now? And I think even those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, we need reminding of who he really is. So over the last few weeks, we've been talking about paradigms, right? A paradigm is a pattern or model of thinking based on an interpretation of the available data. And people are building paradigms about God all the time, and especially right now. But the problem is is that they're looking around at what's going on in the world, and they're building a paradigm of God based on what they're seeing. And whenever you build a theology of God from the ground up, you tend to run into problems because if you don't start with God, how do you make sure you can end with God? It's a lot harder to just look around and then somehow extrapolate what God is like. No, we believe God was revealed in human history, and that's where we start, and then let that speak to the crisis that's going on around us. It's almost like people are looking through the binoculars the wrong way, looking through the lens the wrong way. Uh, Instead of things being closer and clearer, things seem further and less clear. Well, this is true when you try to build your theology of God like that. So a paradigm shift occurs when there is a better explanation of the data, a better interpretation of the data, and we can see, oh, wait a minute, it it wasn't what I previously thought, it was something else. And we, we go through many paradigm shifts, you and I, Um, have been through a lot in our lives, most likely, Uh, often on the same subject, right? You have a certain paradigm of how things are, and then something changes. You get better data, you get new information, or a better 
interpretation. So the question that we're asking in this series is, what would cause a paradigm shift for a 21st century American? You know, with all that we've been through, how can we transform doubt into faith? How does this happen? How do we get people to see God for who God really is, not the bad paradigm that they have constructed of God? And it all really starts with knowing who Jesus really is. You have to start there. Because once you know that, everything else becomes clear. This is what the Apostle Paul believed. And this is why, after a horrible crisis that happened in the life of the Jewish people, he spoke to them. He wrote a letter, the letter to the Hebrews, which we have in the New Testament. And so we're looking at Hebrews because it was written in a time like this, in, right in the aftermath of a crisis. So as we've been saying, again, just to review, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem happened in the year 70. And when that happened, people had a major faith crisis. The Jewish people lost their place where God was present. They lost uh, their political and religious center of their lives all at once. The Roman Empire raided it, burned it to the ground, looted it. And it brought up a lot of difficult questions, theological questions. They were coming up with a paradigm of God based on that. Because you think about it, they're like, well, if that's where God dwells, how could this possibly happen? And you could see what happens. I mean, imagine it's not a large, you know, big leap for us to consider. Well, I'm seeing that the world is kind of on fire right now. What does that say about God? Is God angry? Is God absent? Or is God just simply apathetic? Or is there a God at all? It brings up some deep, difficult questions. And that's why we've been treading in the deeper water in this series. We're getting into some deeper theology because it matters. It matters what we say we believe about God. It matters how you get there. And it matters for how you're then to live your life in response. So what Paul was saying is we need a paradigm shift, Jewish people, after this destruction. And the paradigm shift is Jesus is the better interpretation of what you thought God was all about. The paradigm you had was incomplete or it was wrong. The temple itself has been relocated permanently to your heart through what Jesus did on the cross. Therefore, you don't need the temple in Jerusalem anymore. The temple is within you. And, of course, this was a radical paradigm shift, but he was trying to make a point that God's plan wasn't derailed. It was fulfilled. Even though the evidence around you might think God has been derailed. Well, today we're talking about the importance of how do you understand who Jesus really is? And I think you really have to understand the idea of covenant to understand who Jesus really is. So let's do that. Let's talk a little bit about a word that we don't use a whole lot anymore unless we're talking about the Ten Commandments, right? Covenant. Well, if you think about it, our lives are built on covenants all the time. What are covenants? They are formalized promises. We have lots of them. Hey, uh, I'll take this job and I will make a covenant with you that you pay me to do the work and I will deliver this work in return. Uh, it's a covenant. It's a promise. It's formalized. We sign to it. We agree to it. It has legal standing. It's not just a handshake and a, oh yeah, I'll pay you for the work. No, it's I'm going to pay you this salary, this much. You're going to get this, these benefits. It's a formalized promise or a covenant. And I think when it comes to understanding God, understanding the idea of covenant is really important 
probably the easiest covenant that we can relate to God with is the covenant of marriage. Think about this. Think about how the process of the marriage covenant works, and it will help you understand the process of the covenant with God. So um, there are a series of vows that we make to make the covenant formalized. Each party makes these vows. I will promise to do this. I will promise to do this. But before you ever get that far, what comes first? Love comes first. A relationship of love. And then you get to the point where you're like, you know what? I want to make this official. I want to make the commitment level such that we are binding each other to one another forever. Right? We, we, it's not just, we're just not just casually dating. We are binding ourselves to one another in this covenant promise, and we're going to make vows about how we're going to behave within this covenant. Love comes before the covenant, and then the covenant makes the love official, right? It gives it like a, a legal standing. It takes it to another level of commitment, and it's formalized publicly. Now, who, you know, when you have a couple getting married, who is the other party? Well, a justice of the peace or a pastor is the mediator of that covenant, right? So you have these different parts to play. You have the two parties who are making a covenant of love with one another, and you have the mediator who, on behalf of the state or the church or the authority, is binding these two parties together. So if you understand those different parts, you understand really what God's covenant with his people is all about. So remember back in the Old Testament, the first covenant... And I think, you know, we always think of the Ten Commandments, and people have such a view of commandments, like, oh, you know, these are the rules, and God said, you got to follow the rules, and all of that, but it's such a misread of what was actually happening. Just like in a marriage, the love part came first, at least on God's side. Remember, God delivered the people from Egypt, miraculously through the Red Sea. He demonstrated his love before there was a formal promise of anything. Love came first. And I always like pointing that out because it's not just about rules. It's about a love that is formalized in vows. Saying this is how we're going to behave as an act of love. I mean, why do you do those wedding vows? Why do I vow uh, to forsake all others? Well, because that's the loving thing to do. And I'm going to formally say, I'm going to forsake all others out of love. So all of these are kind of rooted and based. And you take love away and they don't make any sense. But I think, unfortunately, for a lot of people, they've, they've taken love away, and they see God's Ten Commandments as sort of like this, you know, legal, punitive thing, when really it is a covenant of love. So, so what happens? So God shows his love, and, and then he rescues them, and they develop a relationship, and God says, I will promise if, if we can agree together, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And there are a series of vows that each party makes. And we see that in the Ten Commandments, the formalized part of the love. There was a mediator, too, in this situation, although it was a bit different than a marriage, in that Moses mediated the covenant. And that's really because the people didn't have direct access to God. So if you remember stories of the Old Testament, there are a lot of stories about people being terrified to be in God's presence. It was believed that God is so holy that you would just literally disintegrate. You would die. You could not handle his holiness. So there's always a mediator to go between the people and God. The people just didn't have access. 
So Moses mediates, kind of ratifies the covenant between God and the people. And this is the language that kind of is used around that moment from the book of Exodus. God says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Right? I'm going to love you. And, um, and I'm going to make a promise of love, a covenant of love. Although the whole earth is mine, lest we forget, <laughs> although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. And just like in a marriage where there's the giving and receiving of rings and uh, some other ceremonial things, there were some ceremonial things to ratify the covenant as well uh, in that moment. So, love comes before the covenant. The covenant makes the love official. And they lived happily ever after. (laughs) What could possibly go wrong in a covenant relationship of love between humans and God? Well, as you could guess, humans have this nagging sin problem, which ruins everything. Uh, A covenant only works in so much as people are faithful to that covenant as we see all the time in marriage and divorce, uh, that you know, infidelity is something that happens not just in one particular way. It's not just about cheating on your spouse. It's about all sorts of things that are unfaithful actions. Is it, so if people have a hard time keeping covenants with one another, of course, they're going to struggle in keeping a covenant with God. There is a human faithfulness problem that was getting in the way. And so... God's people kept breaking the covenant, breaking the covenant. Now, God never does, and, um, and God goes to great lengths to try to make the covenant work. But, man, it had to be so hurtful and frustrating. Um, I guess that's a human perspective. Maybe God didn't have those same emotions. But if we're made in God's image, I have to think God was, um, God had some suffering as a result of his wayward children. Now, God then had to solve the human faithfulness problem in order for the covenant to work, right? So that's why the first covenant struggled to work because of the, you know, the human faithfulness problem because of sin. But the first covenant was important. It's not just God's like, well, let me try this covenant. Well, that didn't work. Let's try a better one. No, he had to show us just how big a problem the human faithfulness problem is. We had to understand sin and its consequences. We had to understand sacrifice. We had to understand what it means to live in a covenant relationship as God's holy people. It it means something. There are standards. There are vows that we make that we have to live up to. And we really needed that to understand how God actually remedies that fully and finally in his son, Jesus. Jesus mediates the new covenant. And here's the wild thing. This is what makes this new covenant so different, is that Jesus just doesn't mediate because we don't have access to God. Jesus mediates the covenant and then gives us direct access to God. Because the temple has been relocated to our hearts, because of what Jesus did, we can call upon God as our Father directly. We don't need a mediator anymore. Um, Jesus is, I mean, this covenant's so much better 
This mediation is so much better. It's different than the one that came before it. And this is what Paul's getting at when he continues in Hebrews chapter 8. He says, But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have, have, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. This is a really important thing to acknowledge is that I think we get the idea that the first covenant is still binding. And we look to the Old Testament and we wonder why we wear mixed fabrics and eat shellfish, (laughs) right? We wonder why we seem to pick and choose different parts of God's law. And that's because God's law isn't all the same. There are some that are purity laws and uh, some, some that are, uh, you know, other kinds of laws that we follow, moral laws. And it's not so straightforward as to say, well, everything, take everything from the first covenant and just apply it to the second covenant. No, actually, the covenant that Jesus mediates is a better one. It, it overcomes the human faithfulness problem so that we can actually be in a loving promise, a loving covenant with God, for eternity. That should blow our minds. It really should. It's kind of like saying, uh, honey, it's our wedding day, and I know you're going to be unfaithful to me, but I'm going to supply enough faithfulness and forgiveness for both parties. I'm going to make a way for you to remain faithful to the covenant even when you're not faithful to the covenant. I'm going to supply the faithfulness. I mean, that's just, talk about God's love. And again, I think when we think about the Ten Commandments and we think about the covenant, we often think of God, God's punitive correction. But that's not it. It's God's promise that's written in action and that he wants to write directly to our hearts through Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't know if anything shows love more than the willingness to take on a covenant promise like that one. Love comes before the covenant. The covenant makes love official. So how do we respond? Well, I think it's a lot like how we should respond in marriage. What should we do? If it's about sacrificial love and fidelity, 
What does that look like for us to live sacrificial love and fidelity with our relationship with God? I think it looks like this. We should first seek first the kingdom of God. That's how you show sacrificial love. Of all the other things in your life that you can seek, if you seek first the kingdom of God, you're showing that you are sacrificing all else for the sake of the one that you love the most. It's as easy and as hard as that. Right? It's it's a simple idea. Seek God first, and that's how you show love. It's quite another thing to do it. But you see, the reason why we want to obey the Ten Commandments, or we want to obey God's law, is not because we're afraid of punishment. It's because we're afraid to look like we don't love Him. We want to love God back. And so love compels us to try to live in the way of Jesus, to follow God's law, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to show the world what it looks like to follow in the way of Jesus Christ. So we need to seek first the kingdom of God. I know we say that, but what does that really look like? It means in my relationships, in my finances, in my job, in my inner thoughts, in my free time, in everything. It's not that I have to shut everything down and become a a monk out in the wilderness. It just means... I think of God before I think of everything else. And then the second is fidelity. I'm going to keep my trust in God's faithfulness. I trust God's going to be faithful to his word. He doesn't need a a recommittal of vows. I do every day. And I need to make sure that I am a trustworthy covenant partner with God. It's about sacrificial love and fidelity. Love comes before the promise, and love is a response of the promise. See, here's why this matters. When we start to understand this covenant relationship with God, we understand what Jesus really did. Not only did he forgive us of our sins, not only is he uh, the, the pioneer of our faith, not only is he human and 100% God, paying the price for all time. Not only is he the mediator, he's the one that makes this covenant promise possible. It's not a punitive promise. It's a promise of love. It's formalized, written on our hearts forever. I don't know what your idea of God and what it means to live the Christian life is, but I want to encourage you to think about how can you improve or recommit your vows (laughs) into this covenant relationship with God today. Because when you do, you realize Jesus is greater than you ever imagined. Jesus is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine through faith. And it takes faith, especially in times like this. But we remember, it's not the crisis around us that dictates what we say we believe about God. It's the love that's already been written on our hearts through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.